0: What you're hearing is a recording Miami Dade County uses to train police officers to respond to someone in a behavioral health crisis. The goal is to help officers imagine how difficult it may be to follow orders if a person is hearing voices in their head. Research from the Washington Post shows police have shot and killed 1,400 people with mental illness since 2015. Stats like that are helping fuel a push nationwide for a new approach to 911 calls involving people in a behavioral crisis. San Francisco, LA, New York City, and Greenville, North Carolina have all launched pilot programs in recent months. But some communities have spent years developing systems to keep these people safe and out of jail. Today, one county looks at the long game of decriminalizing mental illness. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. By 2004, the Dade County Jail in Miami was housing 10 times the number of people with mental illnesses than it had in the 1980s. Across the state, Florida jails were holding more people with mental illness than the state's psychiatric hospitals, according to a grand jury report. That report, titled A Recipe for Disaster, condemned the state for effectively criminalizing mental illness.
1: In Florida, if you got arrested for a misdemeanor and you were incompetent to stand trial, we would order a battery of evaluations. We were spending between $1 and $2 million a year. And once we adjudicated them incompetent, we would release them back to the street without any treatment because that's what the law said to do.
0: Steve Weifman is a state judge in Miami-Dade County, Florida.
1: There was no warm handoff to anybody. There was just nothing. And so this poor group would just recycle from homelessness to criminal justice to hospitalization with no one intervening to give them what they needed.
0: In 2000, Judge Leifman invited leaders from across the county to talk about how to divert people with serious mental illness away from jail.
1: We literally mapped out the intersection between the criminal justice system and the mental health system. And what we found is that we were embarrassingly dysfunctional. Not the person who was sick, us, the system.
0: So from that, right, came the criminal mental health project. And I know, Judge, a huge part of that is something you all call the crisis intervention team or CIT. How does the program actually work?
1: It is a 40-hour training program that teaches law enforcement how to identify someone who's in a mental health crisis, how to de-escalate the situation so it does not get escalated and deadly force or use of force gets used, and then how and where to take the person if they're in crisis, even if they've committed a low-level offense. And it has had a huge impact. And how do I know that? Because we keep data... On every single CIT call, the two largest departments make. That's the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County.
0: Based on data from the program in the last decade, Miami and the Miami-Dade County Police Departments, the two largest in the county, have received more than 105,000 mental health calls and made fewer than 200 arrests. And Judge Leifman says there were zero police shootings out of those departments in that time period. Judge, what's something that you're doing in Miami-Dade County today that has led to this sort of success that you were not doing when the program launched 15 years ago?
1: We have over 7,600 officers trained at all 36 departments. Uh, so if a call goes out, what's different now is the 9-11 call taker is going to start asking questions. Does this case involve someone with a serious mental illness? He or she will then hit a button to dispatch a law enforcement officer and could hit a button that will send out a CIT officer. So they've been trained on how to identify that person, what distance they need to keep, their tone, their words, their eye contact. They wear a pin that says CIT, which we found actually helps because, believe it or not, a lot of the individuals with these illnesses recognize the pin, which immediately helps de-escalate the situation because they know they're not going to get harassed.
0: So as far as diversion goes, how many people with mental illness are coming into Miami-Dade County jails now versus 10 years ago?
1: Our jail audit went from about 7300 to 4000 uh, We actually closed three of our jails, including one large one. If you close the jail, then you see real savings. And for us, it was $12 million a year. It's been seven years now. It's $84 million in real savings. And my county has been great about reinvesting those money. That's the other part of it.
0: Right. So a big part of that decrease is due to fewer people with mental illness getting locked up. And of course, you want to make sure the county or the state pours that savings back into the programs that support
1: these people. 100%. The system is so under-resourced, you don't want them to go, oh, we're going to give people a tax cut now that we've saved that money. No, you have to reinvest it into the healthcare system to make sure that people are getting the services that they need so they don't come back and get sick again and then you know bounce through these systems.
0: Judge, researchers have found in general, CIT programs tend to not reduce arrests. Now, you've managed to keep arrests of mentally ill people very low, thanks in part to diverting like 66,000 people to social services. But over the last decade, your arrest numbers are flat. Does that suggest that this program has hit
1: some sort of wall? The problem has always been is there's no capacity in the community for the most acutely ill. And we've been very successful with about 70 to 80 percent of the population. We have found that for 20 to 30 percent of the population, they keep recycling through the system. And it's our belief is that they're just too sick and the level of services in the community just does not exist. And that's why we're building this first-of-its-kind diversion facility to afford them what we believe they need and will work to break the cycle. Judge Leifman says
0: that first-of-its-kind facility will have 208 beds and be called the Miami Center for Mental Health and Recovery. It's designed to work with these people who keep getting arrested, people with some of the most complex cases of mental illness and substance use. These are also some of the most expensive cases in the criminal justice system. The judge says the center, which is an example of the county reinvesting money back into health care, is on track to open early next
1: year. We just treat this population, and not just Miami, everywhere, so poorly that it becomes very difficult to get them what they need to recover. And then we blame them for not getting better. Uh, one of my mentors once said to me, you know, there's no such thing as a treatment-resistant person. We only have treatment-resistant programs, and we don't set up the system for them to succeed, and then they get blamed for not succeeding.
0: Judge, thank you for taking the time to talk to us on trade offs.
1: Thank you, and I appreciate your interest.
0: Other cities and counties are piloting programs that remove law enforcement from crisis calls. Critics point out police are more likely to escalate violence, especially against people of color. And Congress tucked a provision into the American Rescue Plan this spring that encourages states to pursue alternative behavioral health crisis approaches. When we come back, Miami-Dade County learns that building effective on-the-ground support is as complicated The criminal justice system in Miami-Dade County has spent much of the last two decades trying to shift law enforcement's approach to mental health crisis calls. This work has helped them realize that keeping people out of jail is only the first step and that people need a range of services. People like a man named Pedro.
3: He was pretty much seconds from death when the police officers came across him.
0: Carol Caraballo is with Thriving Minds South Florida, a state-funded nonprofit that, in part, works closely with police to help connect people involved in these crisis calls with social services. Pedro, we're not using his last name to protect his privacy, was homeless, struggling with anxiety, diagnosed with major depression, and had a drinking problem.
3: He had drank um, four liters of vodka, In a very short period of time.
0: Back in the spring of 2017, an officer found him dirty and crumpled up on the sidewalk a few blocks from the beach, surrounded by empty bottles and food wrappers. Police knew Pedro. In total, they'd arrested him 52 times for things like urinating in public, drinking in public, panhandling, and possession of alcohol.
3: There was a lot of contact by police with him um, due to the nature of his substance use disorder, his mental health condition, all of it.
0: For people keeping track at home, Pedro had been arrested by the Miami Beach Police Department, whose stats are not included in those from Judge Leifman earlier in the show. Pedro ended up in the ICU that day, but Thriving Mind and the officer who found him stuck with him through his eight-month recovery.
3: Everything that he needed was being taken care of while we were also looking for housing for him. So lots of work that went into Pedro, lots of love that went into Pedro. And and I remember the date because it was the 4th of July. So, you know, we kept saying this was Pedro's Independence Day. He received the keys to his apartment.
0: It would be nice if Pedro's struggle ended there. But six months later, his landlord evicted him. And he spent the first five months of 2018 without a permanent place to live. Pedro's back in an apartment today thanks to ongoing social service support, including help covering rent from Thriving Mind. Pedro's experiences illustrate the complications of cases Thriving Mind and law enforcement are trying to triage. In Carol's world, Pedro is considered what's known as a frequent face. People at the center of 911 crisis calls on a regular basis, either calling 911 themselves or in Pedro's case, other people calling 911 out of concern over their behavior. Ideally, Carol says, Thriving Mind could work with law enforcement and get every frequent face the support they need. In reality, that extent of funding is lacking. That's why Carol and her team sought out a modest 3-year $750,000 federal grant to build out a program to support frequent faces like Pedro's. Carol, so what's the name that you all are calling your Frequent Faces program?
3: That's the Dakota Grant. It stands for Data Access and Collaboration on Treatment Alternatives.
0: Got it. I thought like your I thought the grant was like coming from the North Dakota or something.
3: We literally sat in my office one day, my staff and I, and we did like a wordsmith. We threw, you know, literal words on the wall as to kind of what it is we were trying to do, and we were trying to come up with some kind of acronym, and Dakota was it. There was no magic behind it. It was just, okay, that's what it is, and that's what we're calling it.
0: You're working with the Miami-Dade Police Department to monitor 911 calls coming in, watching for people who've made at least three calls over six months.
3: Yes. And that's how we are identifying those individuals so that those detectives and the corresponder will be able to go out to those individuals and offer services in the hopes that we decrease the cost for service. They're not calling police because they're in crisis because now they can call their, their case manager or their care coordinator, whomever that is, when they need help.
0: Carol hopes she'll be able to secure new grants to support this program, but regardless, she thinks it's going to have a lasting impact. That's because they're building a database to streamline communication between the police, healthcare providers, and social service workers. Right now, for example, when someone gets taken to the hospital in the wake of a crisis call, officers fill out a one off paper form. The idea is to make these sorts of filings digital and help people make sure they get the care they need.
3: Law enforcement don't share the same database. Hospitals don't share the same database. So somebody can be taken to five different hospitals and none of them knew that they were at a hospital, you know, a week ago and have received a change in medications, have received a change in their diagnosis. And that leads to that person not really getting better because they're not really receiving that continuity of care.
0: What data do you have right now, Carol? And I realize it's early, but do you have any information to suggest how well your frequent faces program is working?
3: So you know, um, and and I always say this: um, you can't measure prevention. You can't measure what you stopped. Um, I can't give you a percentage or anything like that until we have that. Everything, you know, again, we're in the beginning stages of our of our grant. But just from, you know, the thank yous that we've gotten or the amount of work that the detectives have done and the amount of phone calls that they get from the individuals that they're helping, that they call them instead of calling 911.
0: Carol, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us on trade offs.
3: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. It's been a, a fun time with you guys.
0: The strategy behind the frequent-faces approach and the 208-bed recovery center Judge Leifman talked about is to target people who utilize the system the most, a common tactic in healthcare. And it's tempting to think that providing support to people with the most difficult cases will significantly reduce the problem, but it'll be a heavy lift for the county as few programs nationwide have been able to hit that goal. That said, the Council of State Governments recently selected the Miami-Dade County Police Department as a national training site for all of its work in responding to crisis calls for people with serious mental illness. It's just one of 14 such sites in the country. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. Since the start of COVID, more than 10 million people have joined Medicaid, now covering one in four Americans. Congress has banned states from dropping anyone from the program during the pandemic, but that prohibition is coming to an end, likely pushing millions off the rolls. How states are preparing for this Medicaid cliff? Next time on TradeOffs.
2: If you enjoyed today's episode of Tradeoffs, keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our newsletter. Click on the link in the show notes or on the big orange button at the top of our website, tradeoffs.org. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod. And we'd be eternally grateful if you gave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Tradeoffs is produced by Mary Franklin Harvin and Ryan Levy, Chief of Strategy and Operations, Jessica Silverman, Operations Assistant, Jamie Song, Sound Designer, Andrew Perella, and Senior Producer, Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional thanks to Jackson Beck, Tim Coffey, Officer Samuel Harris and Origin Digital, Hobsy Kaba, Dr. John Newcomer, and Kerry Perez. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Mary Hansel, Kelly Osmondson, Jamie Iosu-Moran, and Martin trade Tradeoffs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute for Healthcare Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-off staff, advisors, or funders. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's.